Welcome to the 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill, a church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill. And while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you turn your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 19. Well, with 20 minutes on the timer, David, the king, is returning to Jerusalem. He had been driven out by the rebellion led by his own son, Absalom. And he's being welcomed back by his tribe, Judah. And the people of Benjamin have also come out to try to sort of soften things too. And people are trying to get back into the king's good graces. Some people like were genuinely loyal to the king and they had just stayed in Jerusalem. And others, uh, they're just trying to get back into a good spot, you know, like the king won't take vengeance on them later. Barzai, the Gileadite, also came down from Rogelim to cross the Jordan with the king and to send him on his way from there. And Barzillai was very old, 80 years of age, and he had provided for the king during his stay in Manaim, and for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, cross with me and stay with me in Jerusalem, and I will provide for you. But Barzillai answered the king, how many more years will I live? that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king. I am now 80 years old. Can I tell the difference between what is enjoyable and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and drinks? Can I still hear the voices of males and females singing? Why should your servant be added to the burden, my lord the king? Your servant will cross over the Jordan with the king for a short distance, but why should I go? Why should the king reward me in this way? Let your servant return that I may die in my own town, near the tomb of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king. Do for him whatever you wish. And the king said, Kimham will surely cross over with me, and I will do for him whatever you wish. And anything you desire for me, I will do for you. So this whole long exchange is basically uh, Barzillai had provided for the king when he had had to flee. And now the king wants to reward him, but he's like, look, I'm an old guy. Um, I just want to go home and, and die where I was born and die close to the tomb of my ancestors. And um, you know what? Here's, it, it's reasonable to assume here that this uh, Kim Ham fellow is his son, grandson, something like that. And he's like, take care of him. So he sets him up, which is cool of him. Uh, and so David says, yeah, I got that. We got that taken care of. And so all the people crossed the Jordan and then the king crossed over and the king kissed Barzillai and bid him farewell. And Barzillai returned to his home. And when the king crossed over to Gilgal, Kimham crossed with the king, and all the troops of Judah and half of the troops of Israel uh, were taking the king over. And soon all the men of Israel were coming to the king and saying to him, Why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him and his household across the Jordan together with all his men? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel and said, We did this because the king is closely related to us. Why are you angry about it? Have we eaten any of the king's provision? Have we taken anything for ourselves? Then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and so we have a greater claim on David than you have. Why do you treat us with contempt? Weren't we the first to speak of bringing him back? And the men of Judah pressed their claims even more forcefully than the men of Israel. So you can see there's sort of this backbiting and and revisionism and the whole thing. Like the men of Israel like, hey, we were talking about bringing the king back to Jerusalem first. And you might remember from last week that the king actually had to send messengers to his own people like, hey, why aren't you guys coming to get me? Um, Why aren't you guys bringing me back? Because the people that betrayed me, they 
uh, they're talking about making me the king again. That you guys didn't betray me. You're my own people, and yet you're not doing anything for me. And so there's this back and forth and revisionism. And it says that a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bikiri, a Benjaminite, happened to be there, and he sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel. And so the men of Israel deserted David to follow Shebi, the son of Bekiri, but the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from Jordan to Jerusalem. And when David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines that he had left to take care of the palace, and he put them in a house under guard, and he provided for them but had no sexual relations with them. They were kept in confinement until the day of their death, living as widows. Let's unpack some of that. So, there's consequences nationally to um, the Civil War. Israel had come and there was this big feeling of like, all right, we're going to bring the nation back together. But then, um, you know, the men of Judah were like, hey, we're with the king. And there was all this like back and forth. And then this guy Sheba just causes a whole bunch of trouble. And he gets all the Israel, the, the people from the other tribes to just, all right, fine, we're going home. And you can see that this rift begins. And it eventually, as I said last week, it is culminated when the, the nation of Israel is divided, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the southern kingdom of Judah was Judah and Benjamin and all the Levites, generally speaking, moved south because the king in the north uh, established pagan idol worship. So the Levites came south. And there was also Simeon, but Simeon was such a reduced force that people just kind of forget about them. Um, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, like a Connecticut or a Delaware, or Rhode Island. Like there's, a, yes, they're a state, but they're very small. They don't really, they don't have the influence of like a New York or a Florida or Texas or a California. And so, um, you know, they kind of get lumped in and just like New England, right? And, and so that was kind of Simeon. Um, but but this, these fault lines that are appearing right here will see their full fruition generations down the road. And then there's this whole thing about these concubines. And if, if you remember a few weeks ago, David uh, left these 10 concubines to take care of the palace. And Absalom, in a move to consolidate power, set up a tent on the roof of the palace and slept with each and every one of them publicly. Now, I'm admittedly unclear, was this just like a canopy, like open-sided, or was it an actual tent and you couldn't see inside, but you could hear what was going on? Um, little unclear. Doesn't really matter. They had a really tragic story. Um, they aren't full wives. They're concubines, so they were never treated respectfully. They shouldn't have had to have married the king in the first place, or been with the king in the first place. They should have... They should have, by the laws of Israel, they should have been free to just live their own lives. The king should not have taken more than one wife. And then when he gets home, there's ceremonial reasons why, but he casts them aside and he puts them away and they live as widows and, he's, he, you know, they don't starve or live in discomfort, but they're just shunned for the rest of their lives. There's nothing good about this. You know, not every... We have this thing like, oh, these great characters in the Bible, they were all godly people, sure, and then they did some really terrible things. Sin causes pain. Sin causes 
pain. It causes destruction. It causes violence, violence to people physically, violence to people's souls, violence to people's mental health. Sin causes pain. David sinned in the very beginning when he took more than one wife. And that sin led to broken situations in his own family where one of his sons raped one of his daughters. And then one of his other sons murdered that son in vengeance. And then there's this whole thing with the concubines and, and, and essentially this Absalom was, was, you know, raped his stepmoms. And there's this whole thing and this whole brokenness. And why did it happen? It was because David sinned and that spread and it spread and it spread. Sin causes violence, it causes brokenness, it causes pain. There is so much grace and there is so much forgiveness. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But understand that even though God gives us grace and mercy and forgiveness for our sin, our sin causes pain and destruction and brokenness. And even if God heals the brokenness, the wounds and the scars, is still there. And, and for some people... They walk with a limp the rest of their life because of the pain inflicted on them, either by their own sins or by the sins of someone else. There's nothing good happening here. Verse 4, the king said to Amasa, Summon the men of Judah to come with me, come to me within three days and be here yourself. And when Amasa summoned Judah, he took no longer than the time the king had sent for him. David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, son of Birki, will do to us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. So Joab's men and the Ketherites and the Petherites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai, and they marched out to Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Berki. Now, remember that David had been very magnanimous. David wasn't looking to take vengeance. He wasn't looking to cause more trouble. He was trying to bring the people back together and heal the nation. But Sheba had kind of said, you know what? Screw that. I'm going to cause more trouble. And David said, look, it's one thing to have sort of a general amnesty after something like this. But if we let this go unchallenged, it'll be worse for us. And he'll go find a fortified city and people will rally to his cause. So David says, we got to go get this guy. So while they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came out to meet them and Joab was wearing his military tunic and strapped it over his waist. It was a belt with a dagger with a sheath in it. And as he stepped forward, it dropped out of his sheath. And Joab said to Amasa, how are you, my brother? And then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. And Amasa was not on guard against the dagger in Joab's hand. And Joab plunged it into his belly and his intestines spilled out to the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. And then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bikri. Whoa, what's going on there? Well, remember last time we were together, that David told uh, Amasa he was going to be, hey, you're going to be the new commander of the army in place of Joab. Joab was getting kicked to the curb because David found out that Joab had killed his son Absalom. And so, you know, he's not going to get rid of Joab. Joab had done a lot of good things for him, but he's being retired. And Joab wasn't having any part of this. Remember, I said last uh, time or two times ago that Joab's not somebody I admire or somebody I think we should emulate. Um, he did the right thing in a, in a moment. He was the right person for the right moment. And yet, outside of that, he did a lot of bad stuff. And in this moment here, he's killing a rival. And he says, all right, you're gone. So he kills him. And then they go out to get uh, this, this guy, Sheba. 
And one of Joab's men stood beside Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road, and the men saw that all the troops had come to a halt there. And when they realized that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped, they dragged him from the road into the field and threw a garment over him. And Amasa had been removed from the road, and everyone went on with Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. So, so basically, Joab left him to die there as sort of a power move, like, yeah, I'm in charge now. And then he realized he's actually caused more trouble for himself because people were stopping to pay respects. And so then they got rid of the body so that they couldn't do that anymore. So then Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, Beth Maka, and throughout the entire region of the Bichrites who gathered together and followed him. And all the troops with Joab came and besieged Seba in Abel Beth And they built up a siege ramp to the city and they stood against the outer fortifications. And while they were battling the wall, battering the wall to bring it down, a wise woman called out from the city, hey, listen, listen, tell Joab to come over here so I can speak to him. And he went over to her and she said, hey, are you Joab? And he said, I am. And she said, listen to what your servant has to say. And he said, I'm listening. And she continued, long ago, they used to say, get your answer at Abel. And that settled it. We are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. And you are trying to destroy the city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Far be it from me, Joab replied. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy. Sure, you just killed a guy in the road, but all right, whatever. This is not the case. A man named Sheba, son of Bichri, from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king and against David. Hand over this one man and I'll withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, His head will be thrown to you from the wall. And then the woman went to all the people with her wise advice, and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and they threw it to Joab. So he sounded the trumpet, and his men dispersed from the city, and each returned to his home, and Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. All right, so um, Bichri gets to this city with his followers, and they're going to hole up there. And the city goes, wait a minute, why is the army following you? And so they call out to the army, hey, what's going on? Like, why are you coming against us? What did we do? And he gives them the situation. They say, yeah, no problem. We'll take care of that. Um, you know, sometimes it's just proximity, right? Like you didn't do anything. You didn't mean to do anything, but you're just around the wrong people. The wrong people have come around you and you got to just, you know, let's, we're, we're done with that. Simple solution. So Joab was over Israel's entire army and Benahi, son of Jehoiada, was over the Kethrites and the Pelethites, uh, Adonram. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Uh, Jehoshaphat's son of Ahilud was recorder. Shiva, the secretary, Zadok, and Abathar were the priests. And Ira, the Jairite, was David's priest. During the reign of David, there was famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his bloodstained house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. The Gibeonites were not part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but, uh, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. And David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? And the Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have any right to put anyone to Israel in death. What do you want me to do for you? The king asked, and they answered the king. As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we would have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. 
And the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath the Lord uh, before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But he took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Ahiah, daughter of Rizpah. Now, I'm guessing Mephibosheth is a common name to have it repeated twice like that. Uh, whom she had borne to Saul with five sons of Saul's daughters, uh, daughter Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzilla, the Mahomethite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites who killed them and exposed their bodies on the hill before the Lord. And all seven of them fell together and they were put together during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. And from the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. And when David was told what Ahiah's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh Gilead. They had stolen their bodies from the public square at Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hung them after they had struck down Saul and Gamboa. And David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of all who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. And they buried the bones of Jonathan and his son, or Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at uh, Zelah in Benjamin, and did everything as the king had commanded. And after that, God answered prayer on behalf of the land. Oh, wow. What's going on there? I'm going to say that there are going to be cultural things that we're just not going to be able to fathom, understand, or support. It seems that the attribution of the reason why there had been this famine, as God answered them, was that there was an injustice done to the Gibeonites. And it had been done in previous generations, and God was holding Israel to account. There are Christians who seem to act as if America is like modern-day Israel. And they speak of God's promises to Israel. And I've heard them speak of them in terms of America. If America just does the things like Israel, then God will bless America like Israel. It's funny to me, though, that they never want to go fully on board with that whenever it doesn't suit them. Because if you want to say that, all right, America is just like Israel, what about vengeance for treaties and oaths that we've broken with the Native Americans? What about justice for those we have wronged, like the descendants of slaves? David's offering reparations. Now, am I, am I, I am, I'll, I'll say this. I don't get political often, but I'll say this. I'm, I'm totally comfortable with the idea of reparations. I haven't yet heard somebody explain how they could be done realistically. But that doesn't mean that just on a conceptual level that I'm, I have any opposition to the idea of reparations to Native Americans and to uh, the descendants of, of African slaves. We did reparations uh, for those who were interned, Japanese Americans who were interned. Um, and that was right that we did that. It's interesting to me, though, that people that want to treat America as if it's a modern-day chosen people, a modern-day Israel, don't like these parts of Israel's story. Um, Now, this whole thing about taking these people and having them killed for the sins of somebody else, look, uh, I can't get on board with that. I don't understand this. I'm thankful that we live in the covenant of grace. I'm thankful that Jesus changes lives. I'm thankful that we don't live in those ancient times uh, and we aren't under their justice. 
But David seems to be trying to do the right thing here. He's trying to honor uh, Rizpah. He's trying to honor Saul, the previous king, his friend Jonathan. And he's trying to end this really dark chapter in Israel's history by doing the right thing. I will say this as we close. Sometimes there are these dark chapters in our own history. The dark chapters of our family's history, the dark chapters of a church's history or a group of churches or a nation's. And we don't have clear things. How do we fix this? How do we do right? And you see people struggling through. How do we do the right thing for things that were done in the past, but we seem to have inherited as a, a, a national sin, a family sin, a, a, a church sin. I pray that God gives us the grace to move forward and seek him for answers. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study. You can follow us at Faith on Hill on social media. Any questions you have, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on our website, and video versions are available on our Facebook page. Faith on Hill is a church that gathers together on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person, and we look forward to seeing you there. And next time, as we go join together again for another 20-minute Bible study.